Good evening, church. Good evening. Let me uh, just say this. If you're visiting with us, maybe I don't know uh, all the folks that are uh, members of this congregation uh, or even maybe from the area, but if you're visiting here for the first time, I know that I can speak for this group to say that you are very welcome here. And we want you to come back and join these saints as they gather together and worship. If there's some question about the Bible, uh, about your responsibility to God, something we can help you with, I know that Brent and the brethren here would be very uh, excited about talking to you about spiritual things. And so please, uh, please let them know uh, that you want to study or you have a question. I know that they'll, uh, they'll jump on that opportunity. I also know, and I think you're going to agree with me in this assessment, uh, that uh, Brother Jonathan is doing a great job. And we thank you for telling us the truth about telling the truth. <laughs> because... Uh, uh, that's a very important, a very important thing. <clears throat> I think you've probably all seen this situation, a very familiar scene. Someone experiences a life-changing event, uh, maybe a traumatic event like a tornado coming through and sweeping away their home or a hurricane washing away uh, the place that they live. Maybe they survive a plane crash or maybe they're in a situation where they go into a burning building and save someone uh, from a, a, a drastic and life-threatening situation. Maybe they catch a pass and, and they win the Super Bowl and there's, there's a very slick news reporter standing right there on the scene and he takes his microphone and he puts it in their face and he says, tell us, when this was happening, what were you thinking? You ever heard that before? In fact, that's kind of almost what we expect to hear. The first question is, what were you thinking? And there's sometimes when I hear that and I think that question is S-T-U-P-I-D. <laughs> but there are other times when I think, you know, there's a sense in which that maybe makes sense in the sense that we kind of know what happened a lot of times. We can see what took place. What we really don't know is what were they thinking when it happened? Because what they were thinking is kind of hidden, isn't it? Unless they tell us, then we really don't know what they were thinking. So there may be a sense in which that unknown factor makes the question uh, legitimate, but I think when we think uh, we put that in the perspective of events that we know about, and yet there are unknown factors in those events, it might be fascinating to take that same question and apply it to biblical events. Would you like the opportunity to go to Noah and say, Noah, what were you thinking when God said build an ark when you'd never possibly even seen it rain? What were you thinking, Daniel, when you were thrown in the lion's den? And there you were, by yourself, in great danger. Or Joshua, tell us, what was on your mind when the walls actually fell down? That question, I think, could very well be placed into biblical history, and we would be fascinated to know the answer that might come. Here's an event we might come across, and that's Calvary. If you were to go to Calvary and you were to ask Jesus, what were you thinking? What, were you, what ran through your mind when you were arrested unjustly in the garden in the middle of the night? What were, you, what were you thinking about on the road to Golgotha when you were carrying the cross that would hoist, on which they would hoist your own body? What was on your mind when they crucified you? And you hung there between heaven and earth. 
But what was Jesus thinking about? Well, that's what I want to talk to you a little bit about this evening. Here's my answer to that. He was thinking about you. And he was thinking about me. Now, how do I know that? That Jesus was thinking about me on the cross. Well, the same way I would know what anybody's thinking. Because I've been told that that's what Jesus was thinking. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Once again, we're in the book of Philippians and we're thinking about, as we study through this text, Christ being the core of our life. To live is Christ. And how it's evidenced in the words of the apostle here as he writes to the church at Philippi. It says, beginning in verse 1, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So we'll start there in the beginning of chapter 2 of Philippians. Consider this aspect here of minds and thinking. Does God care what you think? Does it matter? We asked that question earlier of whether or not God cared what we think. And we said, well, the answer to that is obviously he does. And we referenced even the, some, some other things that Paul said previously in the book of Philippians that would help us to draw that particular conclusion. But you look at the book as a whole and you recognize that certainly he does. That thinking is a major theme, Paul's letter. Of the 26 occurrences of the verb form of mind or think from Neo in the New Testament, 10 are found here in the book of Philippians. If there's anything he wants to get across to these brethren is that God cares about what you think. But it goes further than that, and that's what I wanted to, to, to talk about and maybe pursue this evening. One thing is clear from the text we just read, and that is that God wants us all to think alike. He wants us all to think the same thing. That's kind of hard to do, isn't it? Even in a, a room of just a few people to get them all thinking the same way. But twice in verse 2, Paul says that he desires for them to be of the same mind. In fact, he says, it would really make me joyful if I knew that you were all thinking the same thing. The Greek phrase here is a word that literally means to think the same thing or to be of the same thought. Being of the same mind means we actively strive to achieve a common understanding, that we understand genuinely that we are agreed on a particular topic or an attitude that we share. Well, for Paul to say you need to all think the same thing is not enough, is it? If I tell you, okay, everybody think the same thing. <laughs> not going to do very good unless I tell you what to think. Now, if I tell you what to think, then we might get some unanimity in terms of everybody thinking something at the same time. So Paul says, I want you to think all the same. I want you to carry through this unity of mind. But what mind must we acquire? Is he talking about doctrinal unity? That we must, in this text, we must all have the same mind in terms of believing the same doctrine? Is he talking about all having the same level of knowledge or all having the same level of conviction before God? Certainly we strive for a unity of doctrine. And there are other places in the scriptures that certainly speak to that. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 that we should be of the same mind as he approaches and deals with the aspect of division within the church. But I would suggest to you that's not the point here. That the point here is that the mind we are to acquire, all of us, is the mind of Jesus. Amen. 
the thinking he's talking about is the thinking that Jesus has and that he that he describes. In verse 3 and 4, he brings that out. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Now, Paul often uses a very familiar format where he says, it's not this, but it's this. And in that contrast, he's not excluding one thing, but rather he's showing the imperativeness of of, of what's being emphasized in the text. So Paul commands a way of thinking that defines our doing, that we are to do nothing from rivalry and conceit, but we are to do everything by putting the interests of somebody else above ourselves. It's not selfish ambition, but what the New King James Version calls lowliness of mind, a lowliness of mind. Now, my experience is that's hard to find in the world in which you live, a lowly mind. That's the mind of Christ. It's the thinking that I think forms the bedrock of Christian character. I say that, I believe, without reservation. At least, not only for what the scriptures teach, but what I believe in my own experience and observation. is lacking in the lives of so many Christians something that would make an absolute difference in every way in their lives and in the lives of churches is if we could learn to be lowly in mind. Humility is the groundwork from obedience. It is the platform from which we are able to be like Christ and acquire that which God would provide for us. So many times it's not there. But what is humility? Well, it is a state of mind. It's described in in the translation of the word that's defined as humility as the insight into one's own insignificance. The insight into one's own insignificance. Now, the thing that somewhat shocks me about that is that humility was used not just about me and not just about you. I can see some ways in which I could be described as someone that needs to be more humble or that humility be something that I need. But describe Jesus as one who was absolutely humble, you see, is rather compelling. What Jesus, what this passage, I believe, teaches me, and again, to try to bring things down to what uh, the base level of what's being described here by the apostle that in some ways floors me <laughs> is that Paul's saying that Jesus thinks I'm more important than him. Now that's hard to grasp, isn't it? That Jesus' thinking was that my interest was more important than his interest, that I was more significant than he was significant in the text of this particular scripture. And that that's what in this text is being described as the mind of Christ. And so Paul says, I want you all to think the same thing. Think like Jesus. Be lowly in mind. Well, how does he go on to describe this? He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our common mind is the mind of Christ. That this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus is how the New King James Version translates that. And what Paul then does from that 
admonition for us all to think the same way Jesus thinks is that he poetically and powerfully begins to describe the dissension of Jesus, the humiliation of Jesus. Not just a humiliation, but rather a self-humiliation of Jesus himself. Although equal with God, existing in the form of God, you see, he did not seek to hold on to the privilege of divinity. He did not consider it a thing to be grasped. So he became fully human with all its weaknesses, made himself of no reputation. Walton Weaver says here that Christ voluntarily entered the stream of life as a slave, freely and lovingly choosing to live as a person without advantage, denying his own rights or privileges, and placing himself completely at the service of all mankind. You know, one thing that I think dismays me about this beautiful passage is that sometimes brethren have got so hung up on trying to define what it meant for Jesus to empty himself and arguing about whether or not Jesus actually did this or did that, that they miss the point of the full of the full picture of what he's really describing here. And that is the mind of Christ. Paul's telling us what he was thinking when he would go about the process of saving us. That his thinking was made known by the fact that he made this self-dissension from being equal with God to the aspect of taking on the form of a servant. It does not in any way suggest that he stopped being God or that he gave up the aspect of divinity, but he certainly did not consider the privileges of divinity something to be held on to. He gave up that so that he might participate in the human experience, making himself of no reputation, not just any man, but the lowest of men. He became a slave. The word there is the word dulu, which means slave. Someone whose life is completely given to the welfare of someone else. He experienced the full measure of human frailty. He came in the likeness of men and who is viewed by others to be just that. You see, he was found in appearance as a man. Fascinating to me that the apostle will describe for us here the dissension of Jesus and his incarnation to coming into this world, that he would end this description, at least come near to the end, by telling us what other people thought of him. That's how we value sometimes our worth, isn't it? And the aspect of our significance is what other people thought of it, think of us. And so here is God, the creator of all the universe, He appears in the likeness of men, and everybody thinks that's just all that he is. He's just a man. The prophet Isaiah has spoken about that. It says when they look at Jesus, they're going to think he's someone that God doesn't like anymore, that God has smitten him, that God is punishing him in some way because he's going to die in such a way and live such a life that for many that was the only conclusion that they'd come to about the Messiah. But then Paul says... That he humbled himself. He humbled himself. Where himself there is important to understanding this context of humility. In this passage, humility is not just the consequence of a circumstance. Sometimes circumstances do that. They do humble us. We're put in a position we didn't expect to be in. We're not as successful as we thought that we would be. Things don't go our way, and therefore, maybe as we talked about the other night, we're disgraced, and therefore we're humbled by all of that. You know, I was really humbled by my upbringing. We didn't have much, and we didn't have much to live on. Yeah, all that's good, but that's not what happened here. Jesus was not humbled by his circumstance. He humbled 
himself. He voluntarily became in a position of humility. And that, you see, that, that conclusion about Jesus transfers over into what Paul is certainly talking about here in this text. I must humble myself. Amen. I'm the only one who can do that, and it's my responsibility to take on the mind of Jesus. And so true humility is not just the consequence of circumstance, but rather it is a choice that I make. But when I look at what Jesus has done, and maybe you would come to the same conclusion about this, I recognize that it's impossible for me to comprehend or relate to Jesus' journey of humiliation. This is something that Paul's describing and I can't really get my head around from the standpoint of my own experience. I can't begin where he began in terms of, you see, the things that where he was and his prerogatives before even the create as the creator of the world. I can't claim to ever own what he gave up. He went from God the creator to man the slave, from a sin-free heaven to a sin-filled earth, from praise and the adoration of angels to the reviling and hatred of men. He made that journey from an elevated throne of righteousness as the creator of the world to become the life of a bondservant for the position of the holy God who cannot be tempted with evil to a body of human flesh wherein was provided access by Satan to seduce him. He did all of that because he was thinking about me and he was thinking about you. Amen. He did that by humility. Well, how, does, how far does Jesus go in this journey of self-humiliation? It says here that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, the cross is really an important context, isn't it? There's so many times you can't preach the gospel without preaching the cross and that we can't talk about our own responsibility to God without, you see, centering it on the cross and what Jesus did on the cross. Whether it's the aspect of the cross and the atonement and the sacrifice and officiation that was made possible through that sacrifice or whether it's right here in this text that the fact that Jesus went to the cross voluntarily puts me in the position where I must think that way and act that way. And that's what Jesus did even before he hung on the cross to his disciples. You want to be my disciple? Deny yourselves and pick up your cross and follow me. Amen. Go all the way as far on the journey as I, as I have come and you become obedient to the point of death. Underline that word obedient there. There's so many people in religion that want to talk about faith and exclude obedience. So we're talking about being right before God without emphasizing obedience. Paul places the word obedience right in the context of not only a necessity of humility, but what the cross means, Jesus' cross, meant to him. When he went to the cross, he was becoming obedient to that very point. Amen. So the death of Jesus on a Roman cross was not just a human injustice or even an honorable martyrdom. It was a completion of a divine plan. He was something that was thought through by God himself. Amen. In John chapter 19 in verse 30, and I love this passage. I love to make this point from the past. You ever get a passage scripture, you come across you, man, I really like the point I can make here. <laughs> That's what this passage does for me. He says in John chapter 19, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, here he is on the cross. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up. His spirit. Now let me underline some words there at the end of that. He gave up his spirit. 
The word literally means he released it. It didn't slip out of his hands accidentally. He wasn't trying to hold on to it and he, keep, he couldn't keep it. That's the way I'm going to die. And maybe that's the way you'll die too. You'll die trying to live. Jesus did not die trying to hold on to his life. He died giving up his spirit. Amen. And when he did that, he said, it's finished. He'd done what God had given him to do. The mission was over from the standpoint of his obedience all the way to the point of the cross. Jesus' death was part of a plan. And his death did not cut short his plans. My death will probably cut short my plans, and maybe yours will too. I'll have other things planned for tomorrow when I die. Jesus died. It finished. came to an end. It completed his plan. Now, what that, why that text is here in in this passage, as the Paul describes this journey of Jesus all the way to the cross, is to relate to us not just the event. The brethren Philippi were familiar with the cross just like you and I are and the history of it. But what Paul's emphasizing here is the mind that was behind all of that. The attitude and the thoughts that brought Jesus to the point where he would actually give his life for others voluntarily and give up his spirit. When Jesus was in a position to stand up for himself, He had a different mind. When he was tempted to put his legitimate needs at the front, he had a different mind. So he did not act like you and I acted. He acted very much differently because he had a different way of thinking from the very time that he came here. He was thinking differently than even his closest disciples. I think often of James and John, you see, when they... Uh, they're, they're reviled by the Samaritans and they think, ah, these people here, somebody ought to just do something to them. Why don't we just call lightning down from heaven and burn these folks up instead of Jesus? And what did Jesus say to him? Of course, he told him, no, he wasn't going to do that. But he said, you don't even know the spirit you are of. You don't even know what I'm thinking if you would say that. And there are a lot of times the disciples were right there, not knowing what Jesus was thinking, even as he went to the cross. Peter's saying, this will never happen to you. We'll never let this happen. Jesus said, you're minding the things of men and not the things of God. Not even thinking on the same plane that I'm thinking here. And so that's how we get in trouble too. Because we don't have the mind of Christ. Because we have not yet, you see, acquired or developed to think in this, this humble and submissive way. And so Jesus allowed them to arrest him, to mock him, and to beat him. Put him on a cross to die. All because he was thinking that you are more important than him. So Paul uses Jesus as our touchstone, I believe, in so many different ways. But here is a very important way in which Jesus becomes the example for us to follow. In fact, not only would Paul make this assessment, but Peter as well in his epistles takes the example of Jesus in the same direction. That the example of Jesus is that you should suffer and not revile. When you are reviled, not, you see, take up your own rights against others, but be willing, you see, for the sake of Christ to suffer. And so Peter said, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, but when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What was Peter talking about there? What was the point? That Jesus had a different mind. He had a different mind. 
So what was Jesus thinking? He did not defend himself for his honor all the way to a Roman cross. He did not stand up for himself in times when he could have stood up for himself. And he did not, not because he was weak, not because you see he vacillated, but because you see he was thinking about the obedience to the will of God. Even though they did not know what was happening on that day, Jesus allowed those individuals to take him and to put him on the cross. What does the mind of Christ look like among us? If people in their lives, whether they've been a Christian for a long time or maybe they just now stepped into the kingdom of God, if they learn to be humble people, if they learn to think like Jesus thinks, how will that be evidenced in their life, in your life and in my life? couple of thoughts of mine that I think are necessarily implicit in here and then will be done for tonight. One is the aspect here is they will be selfless. A Christian with the mind of Christ is no longer consumed with his own interest. He's no longer consumed, you see, with what matters in his physical life above the spiritual life. It's not all about me. And when you see that in, a, in, a, in the life of someone, does it not set them apart? That's one of the first things we notice about folks, I think, as we meet them and maybe we come to know them, is the, one of the first things we recognize that sort of stands out is this fellow did something for somebody else. That he extended grace, that he gave a gift, that he provided a need. That he wasn't thinking about himself, he was thinking about someone else. And sometimes that's the answer that they get when they put the microphone up there, right? You went in there and you saved the fellow from burning to death in his trailer. What were you thinking? Well, you're a hero. No, I wasn't a hero. I was just doing what I ought to do. Amen. I was just thinking about someone else. Now, selflessness, though, is, does not come naturally for us. And I think we have to recognize, as we talked about the other evening, that living a life that conforms to the gospel of Jesus Christ, taking on a manner of life, you see, that is suitable to the gospel of Jesus Christ is a challenge for us. The gospel calls individuals to think about others rather than themselves. The world would think about themselves and dispose of the mind of selflessness. Now that tells me a couple of things. One is a gospel that promotes itself by promising people what they want is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a predominant thinking in the world today that God wants you, and John spoke about this, God wants you to be happy, right? And there's a whole atmosphere of so-called gospel preaching that's based on the idea that what God really wants is he wants you to be happy and he wants you to be rich and he wants you to have prestige and he wants you to be elevated above others. You know that violates it violates the mind of Jesus. Not only are there passages obviously that tell us that that's not what Jesus' gospel is about. If we know what Jesus was thinking on the cross we know that doesn't fit. It's not about selfishness. And so Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. You take a look at the fruits of the spirit, versus the, fruit, the fruit of the spirit versus the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. After that great contrasting list, Paul writes, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, we must also follow the spirit. We must not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. But that's not the way Jesus thinks. It's easy for us to think highly of ourselves. It's challenging for us to be individuals that do things not out of conceit, but out of putting other people before ourselves. 
And secondly, there is this aspect that a Christian with the mind of Christ surrenders to the will of God. He surrendered. Jesus' decisive selfless thinking led him to surrender to the will of God in the most difficult moments. That's what that familiar phrase, I believe, in the garden was all about. Not my will, but your will be done. That was evidence of a surrendering of the heart of Jesus to what God, what the Father had intended for him to do and what Jesus had every intention of completing. The will of God was the most important element. And his single agenda was obedience. You get that? His single agenda was obedience to the will of God. What's yours? What is ours? Is it anything other than Less than or in addition to obedience to the will of God. That's the whole authority argument placed in the context of the thinking of Jesus, isn't it not? We're going to speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. We're going to follow the authority of God. Obedience to the will of God is the mind of Christ. We must all have that same mind. So those who claim to have the mind of Christ and balk at obedience at any level are fooling themselves. That's not the way Jesus thought. And then there is this aspect of serving others. A Christian with the mind of Christ will serve the needs of others. I'm glad that's true. Because I know what took place on the cross and you do too. Jesus was focused on us. He placed our needs before his own. And he sacrificed. He sacrificed. Now, maybe next to humility, this may be the next thing that we find so many times absent from the life, our lives as Christians. is the willingness to sacrifice. To give up. We're going to talk about that, the Lord willing, in a lesson that's yet to come. Because I believe that Paul in this epistle advances that idea of the mind of Christ to understanding what it meant in the life of Paul. That Paul started thinking like Jesus. We'd expect that, wouldn't we? And certainly he did. But serving others. So there's a barometer here. Do you serve others? How much time do you spend? Not only thinking about others, but actually putting your hand to the needs of other people. Seeking out those who are struggling and those who are weak. Those who need physical assistance and assistance. And going out and doing those things. To sit back and think that we have the mind of Christ. That we are like Christ. That we are living a life in service to Christ. That to live is Christ in our life. And not be practically getting our hands busy helping other people is fooling ourselves. Has to be evidence in the fact that we actually help other folks. Amen. So Paul, you see, is teaching about this aspect of the practical need of obedience. By putting it in the context here, the very important context of thinking. I'm... Impressed by what Paul said about Timothy, his young protege. Later on in this chapter, in Philippians chapter 2, he wrote to the church at Philippi. He said, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. You're going to send Timothy. Why? Because he thinks like Jesus. Because I don't, Paul says, I don't know anybody that will put you first more than this young man I'm going to send to you. So I'm sending him. Pretty important to find people like that, isn't it? Yeah. Pretty important to find folks like that. He says the very thing, same type of thing about Epaphroditus as well. 
that he holds him in high esteem because he was willing to sacrifice and be even close to death in doing the will of God. He says, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. The mind of Christ changes everything. That's kind of where we started, wasn't it? If you're going to change the world you live in, if you're going to change your family, if you're going to change the church and put things in a better perspective, if you're going to change your own life, where does it start? It doesn't start with a church program. It doesn't start with a preacher's sermon. It starts in your own heart. It starts in whether or not you will begin to investigate Jesus himself and begin to think about what he thought about. So that there will be an answer in your own life of why you do what you do and the choices that you made. I think I think about the mind of Christ, the thinking of Christ, humility and lowliness and all the ways that change the world in which we live. I would suggest to you that nothing has changed society more than the mind of Jesus portrayed in the humility of his own life. Amen. It changed everything for Jesus to come and for Jesus to show us the mind of God. And for those who put it on in their own life, it changes everything. It transforms them, makes them different than they ever were before or ever thought that they could be. Just by learning to think like Jesus and to be humble and to put other people first. Now that decision becomes yours. If you're not a child of God, how would knowing the way that Jesus thinks impact you? Not just knowing the events of the cross. It's a powerful message. The fact that Jesus died on the cross and understanding the process of the spiritual transaction of propitiation and the price that was paid for the sins, for this, for your own sins. That's the gospel story. But underlying the gospel story and the facts of the events is what Jesus was thinking when he actually came down to this world to make that happen. The self-sacrifice and the love of God himself. The mind of Christ was a mind of love. And Jesus, John said about Jesus, you see, that Jesus said, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. That's a mighty challenge, isn't it? Draw all men. We like to know what we could do to draw all men, to bring them in to the kingdom of God. What could it do to get the people to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be saved? John says that Jesus said, when I'm lifted up, and then John explains it. He says he was talking about the way that he would die on the cross. The lifting up there was not the exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of God. As powerful as that was, the lifting up that would change the minds of men and bring them to him was the humble submission to the cross of Jesus. Amen. It's the love of Christ that compels us. And it's the love of Jesus that will bring you to him. Will you respond to that? Will you be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Maybe we can help you even today. Have your affections been nailed to the cross? Is your heart right with God? If you love Him and you have faith in Him and you're willing to turn away from your sins and repent of a way of life that you've been living and turn around and change your mind, you can be baptized into water for the forgiveness of your sins. You can pledge your allegiance to Jesus. You can rise from the waters of baptism to be a new person to the power of the Spirit of God. In the resurrection of Jesus. Can we help you do that? Let's stand and sing. We invite you to come.